0: And then this. Why do you keep hiding my Lamborghini car? Okay, card? you want to put it there? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a matter of time before we started irritating each other.
1: Welcome to Bad Decisions,
0: the podcast that helps us understand why we choose what we choose,
1: why we think what we think,
0: and how to exploit this stuff for fun and commercial gain.
1: I'm Dr. Mel Weinberg. I'm a performance psychologist.
0: And I'm Dan Monheit, co-founder of Hardhat, Hat, a creative agency built for today. Play the music. All right, Mel, I want to I want to offer you a deal. Okay. Okay, so I've got this amazing new piece of technology I've been working on. Yeah. It's quite the revolution. Okay. What this technology is going to do is it's going to improve our quality of life in a way that you would not believe.
1: Sounds great.
0: It's going to make us more efficient, more productive, more fun. It's basically going to more
1: everything. make us
0: more everything.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I'm going to offer you this technology, but have one condition. Yes. Right? So it's going to do all these amazing things. Yep. But once a year, I need to turn up and randomly kill 1,200 people. <laughs> <laughs> what? What do you reckon? Um,
1: look, it sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> but... I don't, don't think I'm in.
0: So no? <laughs> what would no. you do? It? <laughs> well.
1: 1,200 people at random.
0: Well, sucked in. You already bought it. My, my <laughs> innovation is called the car. Oh. Yeah. So why? Well, and that's just in Australia. 1,200 people die a year from car accidents and probably two times that are actually seriously injured or become disabled as a result which is a kind of morbid way to start the show, but it does illustrate something particularly interesting.
1: Yeah, that we shouldn't be driving cars. Well, yes, we
0: should not be driving cars. Bring on the autonomous vehicles, but also...
1: But also what you've talked about and what you've mentioned is something called the framing
0: effect. That is correct.
1: Yes. Yeah, see, oh, you're introducing the one. Yes. Yeah, you got I, the heuristic this I, I, time. I knew this one. Yeah, so the framing effect is pretty basic when oh, it comes to heuristics. Well,
0: sorry for bringing a basic <laughs> heuristic with me today. We can't all be doctors.
1: No, but it's important because it does signify a pretty bad decision. The framing effect is the idea that our brain makes decisions not based on the raw information, not based on what information is presented, but on how that information is presented.
0: Yeah. And look, let's be honest, not only is this like a basic heuristic, but this really cuts into the core of marketing and advertising and... Uh Positioning.
1: I mean, it's all about context.
0: Exactly. How yeah. are we going to tell our story?
1: So, look. By now, it's probably no surprise to our listeners to hear that the framing effect was originally brought to our attention by Kahneman and Tversky back in 1981. Those guys. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good paper. But some other researchers did us a favor more recently, 1998. This is Levin, Schneider and Gaith, where they provided us with a typology of framing effects. And what that does for us is it nicely frames the way that we're going to lay out this episode.
0: Oh, it, that's very meta. It's Did you like it? It's the way we talk about framing? Yeah. Wow.
1: Wow. So here we go. So cool. there were three types of framing. The first is called risky choice framing.
0: Ask, there's always three. Do you reckon they find two and they're like, there must be one more here somewhere?
1: I think if we've learned anything with regard to how to pitch an idea, get three of it. There's
0: always three. If you found two, (laughs) keep looking. There's a third one there. And if you found four, one of them is probably bullshit.
1: (laughs) So the first one is risky choice. So I'll give you an example, all right? So let me ask you. There is about to be – let's say you're the health minister, okay? There's about to be an outbreak.
0: I feel like I'm wearing a bad suit.
1: Yeah, you, you are. Or there's... a good suit compared to other health ministers. <laughs> it's all about the context. See what I did there?
0: Yep.
1: <laughs> so there's about to be an outbreak of a deadly disease and 600 people are going to die.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We've looked around and we've asked all these professionals about how we're going to combat this, and you've got two options. There are the two best options have been presented to you. Here they are. Hit me. Okay, the first, treatment A, you're going to save 200 lives. 200 lives will be saved if we implement treatment A. Okay,
0: that's that's good.
1: Okay. Treatment B, there's a... chance that everybody's going to be saved. And there's a 66% chance that no one will be saved.
0: So hang on. Option A, so we've got 600 people affected by this. Yeah. Option A, 200 people definitely going to live. Yeah. Option B, 33% chance people are going to live.
1: 33% chance that everyone
0: will live. Everyone lives. 66% chance everyone dies. Yeah. 66% chance that everyone dies is enough for me to say no thank you. I'm going to go with option A.
1: Okay, and that's what the majority of people, in fact, seventy two percent of people presented with this problem, would say.
0: What's wrong with the other twenty eight percent of people?
1: <laughs> well, maybe they're realizing that actually the two instances are pretty much the same.
0: Well, like if I stop if I'm really telling you
1: think about it. if I'm telling you that a third of people are going to be saved. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you're saving a third of people. Yeah. Two hundred people. You're. The the difference is that I could also tell you, and I could pitch that to you in a totally different way. What if I said to you, if you do treatment A, 400 people are going to die? All of a sudden, it doesn't sound like a great option, doesn't does sound it? Good at all. It's been reframed.
0: Yep. And I yep. guess, like, you know, when if you have the misfortune of being in hospital and a doctor comes up to you and says, oh, we've got to do some surgery on you, uh, they're much more likely to tell you, look, this has got a 95% chance of success than saying, look, there's a 5% chance this is actually going to be a complete waste of all of our time.
1: Correct. So that's risky choice. Mm -hmm. The next type of framing is when we frame the attributes of something. Mm -hmm. So you know when you see, when you go to the supermarket and you've got your um, beef options Mm -hmm. and you've got the choice of beef that's 75% lean beef. Yes. Would you rather that or would you rather the 25% fat beef?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if we just accept just for a moment, and this probably relates to the previous example as well, that basic statistics and probability is beyond most of us in our day-to-day lives. We're just looking for the quickest answer. And mm-hmm. so clearly looking at something that's 75% good is a far better outcome than looking at something that's 25% bad.
1: Well, let's frame more positively for you. If you're after the leanest meat yeah. and you're going to get 75% lean meat, well, that sounds great. Here's the kicker with this one is that when we frame the attributes in this way, even though what we're actually evaluating and the attributes of it are being presented are exactly the same, what actually happens is that people will rate their enjoyment of the 75% lean meat higher than the 25% fat meat, Right, and even it, though it's the same meat. That
0: makes sense. I guess like buying the most expensive wine on a, on a wine list would probably make you think the wine was more enjoyable than if you bought that same wine at a better restaurant and it was kind of somewhere down the bottom of the list.
1: Right. It's all about the context. Being framed differently.
0: If we stay in the supermarket aisle, I mean, something we see – in australia is that most dairy products are promoted as fat-free so 98 percent fat-free 99 percent fat-free 95 percent fat-free which kind of makes sense that's what people want to know about mm-hmm. uh, i always find it interesting when you go overseas especially when you go to europe i think maybe even the states have it as well and they'll have like two percent fat milk it's like even though two is a very small number it's still like you're telling people that there's fat in there
1: yeah you could flip the whole dairy industry on its head if you went to the northern hemisphere
0: yeah i mean it's it's like they rolled out the whole industry before anybody had a chance to be like wait wait wait, wait no, no, don't do that don't make the industry standard to talk about how much fat make, you could just say yeah, that it's
1: 98% fat how free how much
0: not fat that is far more expensive. and exciting, everybody will be far lying more 2% <laughs> yeah. this actually makes you think of a, another example something that happened not long after the GFC which I, I remember at the time thinking well that's really clever how they've done this um, and in the same way it's taking the same information but you know presenting it completely differently so this was something with super luxury car dealers. I think maybe, I'm just gonna talk about Lamborghini as an example, I can't remember if it was them, but let's just assume it was. And let's say these guys are selling $400,000 cars. And at the best of time, selling a $400,000 car is difficult. Selling it off the back of a GFC is like really almost impossible. Yeah. So what these guys are doing is they're sitting on stock of cars. They've got new models coming. They have to get these things out. Mm. And in the normal law of supply and demands and, and normal economic theory, if you have a $400,000 thing that you want to sell more of, what do you do? we the price, right? Yeah. Price goes down, Give demand goes up. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, you can imagine going up to a Lamborghini dealership and seeing like 25% off stickers plastered everywhere like it was JB Hi-Fi or something. Clearly not going to happen, but they still have to move the cars. So what these guys ended up doing was reframing the discount. So instead of m- marking a $400,000 car down to a $300,000 car, right, they managed to keep the price at $400,000, but would basically overpay people $100,000 for their trade-ins. So you right. turn up with a, whatever, $100,000 car to trade in. They say, no, 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 the Lambo is a $400,000 car and we never discount the $400,000 car. But you know what? Instead of giving you $100,000 for your BMW that you've brought in, we're going to give you a $200,000 allowance for that car because it's a good one.
1: So it's really interesting what they've done there because they're actually retaining the perceived value of the Lamborghini.
0: Exactly. So what they've done here is a really cool job of reframing because what they've done is they've left the $400,000 Lambo as a $400,000 Lambo. But instead of giving you a $100,000 discount off the retail price, they've given you a $100,000 bonus on your trade-in car. And at the end of the day, you've given your car the same amount of money and walked out with a $400,000 automobile very clever win win win
1: so the third type of framing effect is when you frame the goal of something or more like the outcome okay so think about it in terms of if you needed to pay a registration fee for something Mm -hmm. right and an example is that when people are presented with a registration fee and there's a penalty for paying it late 93 percent of people paid on time Mm -hmm. okay that's Pretty good odds, yeah. right? Yeah,
0: turns out fees work. <laughs> late fees. Late fees, yeah. Late fees work.
1: Yep. yep. The flip side is that when you're presented with a discount for early registration, how many people will pay it early, and you only get 67%.
0: Which is interesting, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's why I said it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I
0: mean, it's interesting because I think in a previous episode we talked about this idea of loss aversion. hmm uh, and so maybe we perceive the fine as an extra loss yep. and we're far more motivated to avoid a loss than we are to get a gain, which would be why more people would want to avoid the loss than to get the gain of paying early.
1: Right. So that's perfectly consistent with loss aversion.
0: Yeah. Which is actually kind of weird though, because when I look at how energy bills come,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we know it's more effective to charge people a late fee, Yeah. but most energy bills and certainly my energy bills don't have late fees, but they have discount fees if you pay early, which according to the research, I guess we would you were just talking about, uh, is a less effective way.
1: Right. So here's the thing, right? It's effective in terms of compliance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you want people to pay their bills or pay their fines on time, instituting a late fee or a penalty for not paying it on time is going to be effective. But here's the thing. If you're a brand who wants to maintain an ongoing relationship Mm -hmm. with a customer, well, how much are they really going to like you if you keep slugging them with late fees?
0: Right. So it's like... Slightly worse in the short term, but far better in the long term for the energy provider.
1: Right, to so give energy you discount. That's right, energy provider wants to be your preferred provider. If yeah. they keep slugging you with late fees, at some point you're going to say, uh uh-uh, uh, and you've got a choice in the market and you're probably going to shift to something else.
0: Yeah, so a good take out here is if you're in a government sanctioned monopoly, You just slap people with late fees because what are you going to do? You go, I hate this council. I'm taking my house somewhere else, right? Obviously not an option. So they don't really care if they get hated unless you're listening to us from a council and I'm sure everybody loves you. Love you. Love you. Please don't give me parking tickets. But people don't have a choice. So they just got to put up with it. Whereas if you're in a competitive market, whether it's telecommunications or gas, electricity, whatever, that long-term relationship is more important. So we're better off giving a discount than offering a late.
1: Yep. So it's a trade-off. Yeah. That you've got to trade off. You've got to understand that if you are going to push compliance, if you're going to push compliance in a way that's going to make it most effective, it's going to come with a compromise of your ongoing relationship and your customer satisfaction.
0: I guess another thing just maybe tangential to that, but there's a a weird, look at me, I am going to talk about the psychology. There's a weird thing that happens in my head where I think if I didn't pay early and end up paying on time, so I missed the discount, it's like, oh, that's my bad. I'm an idiot. Mm. Whereas If I was about to pay on time and I kind of got distracted and I ended up paying a day late and they slugged me with a late fee, I'm like, these guys are assholes.
1: Yeah. So it's an attribution error as well about who's actually taking the blame or who's taking the responsibility for it.
0: Yeah. I'm responsible for good things in my life. Mm -hmm. Other people are responsible for bad things in my life completely yep. normal
1: yes yes you yes. are <laughs> so we're going to shift gear for a moment and look at an ad that has given us a really good example of the framing effect in
0: action i love ads I know let's you look do. at more ads it's I very hard in the auditory format it's not <laughs> a lot of good radio ads but we're going to describe a tv ad right
1: right and it's an ad from the transport accident commission the tac
0: Yeah. So for those of you not from around here, TIC are the the guys in charge of making sure we all get home safely and nobody dies on our roads. And this was brought out as part of a big sort of repositioning or or reframing from them. So a number of years ago, they actually adopted a road safety system or philosophy out of Scandinavia, out of Sweden. And it's the idea of moving towards zero, where there was this inherent sort of understanding, even in things like terminology, like road toll, that some number of deaths on the road are just inevitable, like road toll. There is a toll you have to pay for having roads as a society. Yeah. And maybe even at a deeper level, you know, if you heard about someone who was drunk behind the wheel wrapping themselves around a pole, eh, people would think, well, they, they probably deserve to die anyway. They weren't really doing the right thing. They were breaking the law. But this harsh, but, eh, harsh, but you know, <laughs> probably what a lot of people would think. This new philosophy says, Well, look, humans aren't perfect, so we have to wrap a whole system around them, right? if we really believe that zero deaths is the only acceptable number of deaths on the road. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's a, it's a very interesting way of reframing what, what they're about. Their entire um,
1: position, like you say.
0: Exactly. And I think this, this ad that you're about to talk about is a wonderful illustration of that. In 2016, 291 people died on our roads. What do you think would be a more acceptable number? Um, acceptable? 70, maybe? Probably 70. 70?
1: 70. Yeah, 70. Because 70 would be good. Compared to 291 deaths, hey, 70 sounds like a win. Yeah. Right? 70 is pretty good.
0: Imagine if we could have 220 something one, one <laughs> Less deaths on our road this year. Wouldn't that be amazing?
1: Sounds like a massive win for road safety. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Here's, here's the reason the ad's effective and here's what happens next.
0: Can you send
1: 70? Actually, this is what 70 people looks like. So all of a sudden what happens is this conception of 70 abstract people who I don't know and who I can't put faces to and who have nothing to do with me dying on our roads. Well, yeah, I'll wear that. All of a sudden you've put faces and names and persons, literally real people, people who are close to this man um, in the view and you've presented 70 of them and you've said to him, "Mm, you still think 70 is acceptable?
0: So, now, what do you think would be a more acceptable number? Zero. Zero. Actually, I don't really like my second cousin who you've brought out. Maybe <laughs> one. No, he says, he says zero. And I guess, to, you know, to highlight what you're saying, I mean, they've reframed a reduction in 291 anonymous people to 70, mm. or reframed from that to zero people you know to 70 people you know.
1: Exactly. It's a complete reframe and it's something, first of all, in the first instance it's seen as a gain from 291 down to 70, massive wins, um, but when you've got 70 loved ones lost, All of a sudden, that's about the biggest loss that you can get to lose your entire family, including your eighth cousins. Yep. That's a lot of loss.
0: So I'm not sure what you're meant to do as a result of seeing the ad uh, other than believe that that is a worthwhile positioning for the Mm. organisation to be going after, but a beautiful illustration of literally seeing uh, framing unfold before your eyes.
1: Yeah, and what makes it more powerful is that what they've done is they've primed this guy. They've pretty much set him up to give that answer, right? Because they started with 291 people died on our roads. Yes. Last year. Yeah, which
0: Trump. kind of harks back to the idea of anchoring that we've spoken about in a previous episode as well, where you, you know give somebody a number first and then get them to guess and their guess is always sort of relative or pegged on that first number that they hear.
1: Yeah, so priming pretty much provides people context by setting themselves up, by giving them information on which they can base their next response or the next statement.
0: Exactly. And I think priming, you know, if we talk about the, the framing effect as being the how something is presented, not the what is being presented – Priming has a huge role to play in that because priming is almost a thing that happens almost immediately before the observed behavior. Yeah. Which is why I really like have no faith in most survey results that are published in things like newspapers because you don't know what the one or two or ten questions they asked before the question they've actually reported back on. So if you're going to do a thing on gun control as Mm. just a random example and you wanted to publish what – whether people thought we should have tougher gun control laws – if the preceding five questions were about, did you know that X number of people were killed in the last 12 months because of you know our current gun laws? and Did you know that you know more than 70% of these people were children? And did you know that whatever, whatever? And then you just ask the question, do you think we should have tighter gun control laws? You think that that's going to prime people to say yes, as opposed to if you started your line of questioning about, did you know that our freedom of rights and freedom of speech are now more suppressed now than they've ever been at any time? You know, so.
1: This so you're saying you don't have faith in the research that's published in newspapers? Correct. Here's the difference. Yes. <laughs> and just like, just to fight back for research. Yeah. When research is done in science and yes. printed in proper scientific journals, proper we actually scientific journals real as opposed to the newspaper. Right. <laughs> um, researchers are actually aware of these sorts of things. We call them item order effects. Right. right? And so whenever I ask people questions even if it's if it's research study or whether I've got a client in my office and I want to know how they feel I'm first of all not going to ask them you know, how much pain did you feel today? How uncomfortable are you right now? I'm not going to prime them to think of other things before I say, and by the way, how wonderful is your life right now?
0: Yes, I guess if you said to me, uh, give me a list of all the things that are upsetting you at the moment and then said, so how are you? Yeah, I've probably just primed myself into saying not very good.
1: Right, so we're aware of these things and there are contingencies that can be made in terms of the planning of surveys to ensure that people are not primed prior to answering questions.
0: But is not priming even a possibility?
1: Well, what we know is that there are examples where you can deliberately prime people to think a certain thing right and there are things that can happen that can precede a question that will automatically prime somebody to think something so mm-hmm. what we can do is do our best to reduce any effects of priming at least any effects of deliberate priming
0: yeah but i guess you can't control whether somebody's had a great morning you know somebody got stuck in traffic trying to get to their appointment with you or trying to get to the place where they were going to complete the survey and they bump their toe walking in and they're phones just crack their screen, right? Or whether they just got a call from some long-lost relative telling them that they'd like to write them a check for $2 million.
1: It's true, but I can get a pretty good indication by the look on their face right. <laughs> as to whether they've just busted their toe and broken their phone yeah. um, or whether somebody's just given them $2 million. So I can incorporate that into my interpretation of their answers.
0: And by that, you mean throw their answer in the bin?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, shitties. if it's not an accurate representation of their general state or general yeah. mood, then yeah. yeah. So to summarize where we've come to so far. So in terms of framing effects, we've talked about the three different types of framing effects. We talked about risky choice. We talked about attributes and we talked about goals. Then we threw in a bit of priming information, right? So now that we know all of this and now that our listeners are so much wiser to all of this, mm. what do we do with it?
0: So it's a good question because a lot of this sounds you know, really fundamental. When you look at the first two ways that framing works, a lot of it is just to do with putting your best foot forwards, mm-hmm. right? And we don't need to tell people that if you have a, a product that's got a 85% chance of succeeding and a 15% chance of failing, we're better off telling people that it's an 85% chance of success. I
1: think people get that. Yeah,
0: people get that. <laughs> but I mean, this really cuts to the core of branding and positioning of of businesses. So some of the things we might talk about is I don't know if you pick a pick a beverage, right? Pick a vodka. Right. Do you want to be the best vodka from New Zealand? Mm. Right? So you're the, the best of all the vodkas that come out of New Zealand, this is the number one?
1: New Zealand big for vodka. Hey? Well
0: yeah. Or do you want to be the most New Zealand vodka in the world? Right. Right? So like where are you setting your frame? Are you looking at the global stage and how you're going to do that? Or are you looking at a smaller local stage? Similarly, one of the things we'll often ask about a new product or service is, is this product more like a paracetamol? Like is this a thing designed to take pain away? And we're going to frame it all around all of the pain that you're currently suffering, how this product's going to fix it? Or is this product more like a multivitamin? And it's going to not take you from negative to neutral, but it's going to take you from neutral to amazing, wonderful, skipping through the fields in the sunshine.
1: Got it. So that's what we can do as brands. From a consumer perspective, it's really simple. We know that our brain is making decisions based on how information is presented. Your job is to try to neglect, as best you can, all this information that is distracting you and make the good decision by focusing on actually what information is being presented.
0: Right. So if you're a consumer on the receiving end of the vodka example I gave before. Just try and work out if it's good vodka. Well,
1: and do you want vodka?
0: Yeah. Well, let's assume we you do, right? Goes with most things. It's a great breakfast drink. Don't drink vodka for breakfast. But just not focus always. On, is it a good product?
1: Do you actually enjoy it?
0: Yeah, but don't do that too much because then I won't have a job. Mm.
1: All right, so that's pretty much a wrap on the framing effect.
0: That is true. Uh, After listening to this podcast, if pain persists, please contact Dr. Mel. Uh, (laughs) You're all over the internet at Dr. Mel Weinberg.
1: At Dr. Mel W.
0: At at Dr. Mel W. Yep. Uh, And I'm also in some parts of the internet at, at Dan Monhart.
1: See you next time.
0: Yeah, see you next time. When is next time, Mel?
1: Well, you know, I think we're due for a little bit of a break, actually.
0: We have been working pretty hard.
1: And we've pretty much exhausted all of Kahneman and Tversky's 1981 paper. (laughs) You are going to need to
0: get back to your research. We're going to take a little break. We've got some side projects we're working on here. Uh, But we will be back.
1: We'll be back soon.
0: More bad decisions.
1: There are definitely more bad decisions to be
0: made. Thanks for listening.